Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, uh, we have uh, uh, Greg DeVries and Patricia O'Donnell with us from um, Heritage Landscapes, LLC. Thank you for joining us or me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your backgrounds. All right. Well, I'll start. Um, this is Greg. And basically, I started working with Heritage Landscapes back in 2004, but really came to the field through a variety of different directions through cultural anthropology, um, landscape architecture, archaeology, environmental studies, and, and really looked for a way to find a career that would merge these things. And uh, basically through preservation landscape architecture, I found that. Very interesting. And I'm really a pioneer in the field. Uh, grew up in a city with a important Olmsted Vox park system, the first they designed 1869. And in Buffalo, landscape was kind of ever present because of this system of parks and parkways. And I kind of crafted my majors at university because Preservation landscape architecture didn't yet exist. Right. <laughs> sometimes, that's, sometimes that's the way to do what you want <laughs> is to make it fit. So, what did you what did you end up studying? How did you how did you kind of make that work? Well, I have a master's in landscape architecture, but in an applied behavioral research concentration, which is about people in place. So okay. Everything's about people in place, so that right. Was and then I took a urban planning master's in um, preservation because they did preservation almost entirely directed to buildings, occasionally right. to a district or some larger scale. But I, again, shaped the coursework within urban planning to fit. Mm -hmm. Greg also has diverse background because his degree, he has a a terminal degree and a master's in landscape architecture, but he's got anthropology and Spanish right. and, yeah. you know, other stuff that all contributes to his broader perspective. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's true of a lot of people that, that kind of, 
the more I just finished reading a book, this is completely unrelated, um, called Range. And it was about how people who generalize, who who find multiple things to specialize in, um, actually do better and transition and, and do more more things that have an impact than people who just, you know, dr- dr- uh, drill down deep and specialize in one thing and don't kind of look up from their little, their little uh, silo. So I, I, I th- that makes sense to me that you would have, you know, multiple, multiple concentrations, especially if there was nothing when you were in school to to really talk to what you want it to do. So, and you've kind of answered the why preservation um, aspect. So we've talked a little bit as we've got prepared for the interview about landscape as a noun, landscape as a place. Um, do you, um, do you want to share with me? Um, I don't, I don't think that outside of, of, of the landscape community that there's, or the landscape architectural community, I don't think that there, there, people really understand they might intuitively understand after they hear it but I don't think it's like a thought that they have so no I I mean I think the general usage in society is landscaping which implies an activity right Um, most people we have a ton of gardeners in the United States maybe more right now than ever and uh, people think about landscape as plants right Um, our framework is landscape as space as place and certainly place-based research underpins all of our work whether that place is small or quite extensive Um, so i think it's really interesting to frame landscape as place and to say look there's a lot of aspects i mean if you think about Architecture, landscape architecture is everything else. Right. Like the world outside of the building. Right, yeah. And it it sets the context. of Yeah, so we think of it as important in and of itself, uh, sometimes with a very important piece of architecture that is within that landscape context. Mm -hmm. But space, land use, visual aspects all the views mm, yeah natural systems how the geology the topography the hydrology works um whether that's manipulated by people or mm-hmm. as it was native natural right. um and then you get to vegetation sort of once you're kind of through the larger <laughs> frameworks and on down to circulation systems we often think about that as only land-based but it can also be water-based oh yeah and certainly in traditional usages first peoples indigenous cultures multiple forms of movement are all part of their experience of a larger place historically but also their embedded experiential references today so it goes all the way down to like the small scale stuff like I'm looking at a historic site at my desk today and there's a carriage block. Hmm. Yeah. What does that tell us? That little carriage block says, okay, this is the place where they came with the horses and the carriages. Right. Right. And, and sometimes those clues stay even after the building and everything else have, have gone. I know um, we have a, 
filled close to our house that has um at the corner it bothers me because the the mower keeps hitting it not our mower but there's like billboards at that corner and um in the field and there's like a it, it was a marker for, I don't know if it was like a mileage marker or something, but there's like an old stone marker there at the corner of that field. And then the, the mower hits it and it, and, and it gets me upset. <laughs> but, you know, those, those, that's a, it's completely out of context now, but there, it's a clue as to what, what was there before. Yeah, certainly. I think when you get down to the level of, kind of the interaction of people in place. You have things like, I'm just thinking of vegetation of, let's say wild rice and the way that wild rice or certain plants that occupy a landscape uh, come to exist is oftentimes through harvesting and through the active use mm. of that kind of place. So orange groves or, you know, you could think of it in a lot of different ways, especially with these kind of cultivated crops, but they may appear to be uh, wild but or or somewhat permanent mm -hmm. in a sense but really they're it's through the interaction with people over time that they come to be and that they're maintained right yeah I, that that makes sense to me um and so do you um when you're going in and looking at a property is there usually do you do you have the the understanding of what like how do you how do you develop a plan i i'm I, and I know that wasn't on our list. I'm just curious. <laughs> is it like, is, are the things already there? Or do you use historical documents? All of the above, really. Okay. Um, I think it's the, beginning with good documentation, looking for what's available, as well as getting your feet muddy, finding out what's there, speaking with other people. Usually places have caretakers. Right. Uh, so long-term residents of a neighborhood or um, all the different various, you know, the, the world of the, the digital world is great, especially now <laughs> yeah. um, to be able to access information repositories um, that help you develop the background information that then go in toward um, informing what the, what the actual plan would be based on the, whatever the program elements would need to be. Okay. So we often create what we call period plans. I was going to add, that was, that was kind of a fault question that I was thinking about. Do you take it back to a certain time period rather than, or, you know, to match or does it, is that a. Well, I said plans plural because mm. oftentimes there's more than one period right. of evolution in a property. Mm -hmm. Right. And the other thing that's important is understanding significance. So We've had projects where there was a debate about significance. Uh, we worked on Elizabeth Nays Museum, um, Formosa in Austin, Texas. Interesting small property uh, developed first in the late 1890s on a creek, sort of at what was the edge of town, now a very nice neighborhood, <laughs> all grown up. Right. Um, but the important era, the reason why that place is historically valued and stewarded by the city of Austin is Elizabeth Ney, right. the sculptress from Bavaria who did some very important sculptures, including Stephen Austin, the one that stands in the Capitol at Washington, uh, who 
provided statuary from Texas to the World Columbian Exposition, who was also a transcendentalist and is credited with bringing arts and the arts education to Texas. So, <laughs> you know, that's why this place is right. important. Uh, she also happened to love native plants and treated her place like, uh, you know, the edge of a prairie, which is kind of what it was, and, mm -hmm. and brought in a few exotic things like banana plants because she lived with them in some tropical place beforehand. Right. So very interesting relationships there. There was a later era when garden clubs saved the property, made a bunch of changes to it. And our judgment on that was that those changes didn't contribute to the significance. Right. Yeah. And, and I know that we get into that with buildings too. So it makes sense that you would do that with, with the, as you're looking at the landscape, um, you know, you, is it the, the period, the period of, of significance and then also the changes that have been made, do you, you know, are you going to take it all the way back to the original or do you honor those changes as something that has, that tells the story of the property? And it, it, it really does depend on if it's tied to one person or not, if it's, you know, and I, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's probably how you approach that too. For one event. I mean, right. Yeah. You know, at Woodstock three days in August, 1969. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And do you, but there isn't always a answer that says, take it back to an earlier time. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the, I think one of the things that the general public doesn't get about preservation is that is not really the primary motive. No, the primary motive is respect what you inherit. Right. And, and maintain it and, 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 and well, first respect it and right. say, okay, <laughs> this is the stuff we inherited from Right. These yeah. important things that happened here in the past. Right. Yeah. And maybe help people to understand it better. We do a fair amount of work with wayfinding and interpretation. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily peel back, not necessarily remove. Yeah. But tell, helping people tell the story and understand it. Is that what you mean by, by the way? The wayfinding well wayfinding on a big property is like just know where you're at and don't be confused <laughs> safe but it's also are you honoring the sequence of the place as you are supposed to experience it gain an understanding of it you know is there a, a ideal movement pattern and yeah, that make that makes sense. And and especially in a outdoor space where you're typically not maybe on something that would be guided, where it's more self-guided. Is that yeah. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. So so I know that you've we've talked a little bit about your projects and we'll get more into those a little uh, more, but are your is your primary service then uh, landscape architecture or, or do you have do you have other services? Well, I would say preservation landscape architecture is pretty broad. broad. Okay. Okay. But since I also have an urban planning degree, we call ourselves Heritage Landscapes LLC Preservation Planners and Landscape Architects. Okay. So we're often engaged in a planning in overall planning, yeah, of work or even just a piece of work that's research and documentation. I mean, a few of those that we mentioned are like the work we did at Longwood Gardens, New York Botanical Garden, basically 
gather the historic record together and make it comprehensible in narrative sources and you know highly articulated sources and lots of graphics so that the people who steward the place are moving into the future better informed and that and i think that's really important especially for those larger organizations because you know, you get that, you, um, you, you get that when people leave and, and that information leaves with them, I can't think of what that, that word is from business school, <laughs> but, uh, when, but when that, when that, um, when people leave and, and they take their information with them, if you have that, all of it documented and the history, then it doesn't leave with them. It stays with the property. Which yeah, the is collective important. memory is fragile. Yeah, it is. It is. Very, to sometimes go to the effort to put everything together and package it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Are do you um do you um the geographic areas is it is it nationwide typically that you that you serve? So. Oh yes. Um pretty much from coast to coast and north to south. Yeah. Okay. Okay, very good. You know, a concentration of work in the, on the east coast in general. Mm -hmm. Um but currently projects on the desk range from California to, oh, Louisiana, all the way up the Eastern seaboard. Okay, okay, very. And, and I'm sure that gets you into a variety of different projects and, and different, you, you get into different, um, even um, like styles because the, it, it, the style changes, you know, based on the mm -hmm. area you're in. So um, I know you have extensive amount of, um, of projects on your website and we'll make sure your, the website is um, up when we post the, um, uh, the, the podcast so that people can definitely go on and, and peruse it. But do you want to give me some examples of the projects that you've done and, or, and, and examples of, of how you use the, the knowledge of, the place and the and the people and provide context. You want to start, Greg? Uh, you can go ahead, Patricia. Well, um, we've done a few authentic restorations. Even though I said earlier the goal isn't always to take something back to an earlier time, uh, one of them was for a property called Old Fields, designed by the Olmsted brothers. It's one of the four. National Historic Landmarks listed for the Olmsted legacy of FLO Senior, Calvert Vox, his son's associates, which was over a hundred years, which is why the Olmsted name looms so large. <laughs> yes. Um, this particular area within Old Fields was called a ravine garden and it was completely overgrown, really didn't uh, read anymore but it had an interesting series of water features, curvilinear pathway, steps in stone, diversity of plant materials, all very carefully articulated by the Olmsted brothers for a particular effect of moving from the formal frameworks right around the main house downhill to an adjacent canal the gentleman who um, hired the Olmsteads was the owner of the canal company. Okay. So it's 27 acre property, but this two acre garden was a critical experiential element. Right. And we did a very modest initial report that just said, look, we understand what this place was. It was, 
created by master design team, landscape architects from the Olmsted brothers. And it's completely gone. You have a choice. You can steward what you've got, but parts of it are unsafe today. So you have right. to deal with your safety issues, trees that are not in good shape, steps that are falling apart, uh, water features that don't work. Their decision was that, that it should be essentially reconstructed to the earlier period based on highly detailed documentation from the original designers. So in that case, we did a restoration, but right. under the Secretary of Interior standards, that's called reconstruction because mm -hmm. the traces were there, but it really wasn't much there. It was rebuilt. Yeah. And that that is what, yeah, that is what restoration is versus preservation. <laughs> So. And the and the dictum in preservation is you must have highly detailed documentation and limit your speculation. The same as it is when you're trying to do a precise museum quality building restoration. Right, right. And and if you have those original documents, I'm sure that that makes your your job um a little bit easier because there is less guessing you're not going in and kind of i'm sure it's very similar to building restoration where you go in and kind of unpeel the layers and kind of see what what had been there what what you can what you can see especially if you have um original documentation yeah it's a good parallel yeah, yeah. so um i know that you've talked about um the bigger like parks like the city parks and things like that is that um are there are there other um projects that that you wanted to highlight or maybe greg you could talk about jackson park for a minute because that's uh, yeah. very contemporary that's uh an interesting uh kind of taking another term from the secretary of the interior that it's a rehabilitation project mm. and Jackson Park uh, Olmstead designed park the uh, original site for the for the for the Chicago World's Fair um, basically um, the project took the I guess used the Olmstead palette but but used primarily native materials, entirely native materials, um, almost with or an exact replication of the planting plans themselves from, from the original um, Olmstead and, and Warren Manning plans. So this is, you know, Jackson Park, part of the, the original South Parks for the city of Chicago uh, with the Midway Plaisance and Washington Park. Um, uh, basically what started out as a project with the Army Corps of Engineers to create natural areas and uh, resuscitate the kind of um, problematic lagoon systems that had been affected over time um, became a project to restore, well, recapture the, vet, the, the character of the park and make it useful for people um, of the south side, but at the same time restore that character with with the original uh, 
planting plans and the like. Patricia, you want to add to that? So if we go back to our, you know, what are the features of a landscape? Mm -hmm. We said, okay, um, we can work with the U.S. Army Corps on this federally funded habitat project, make it homestead in in quality, hmm. get it approved by the State Historic Preservation Office to go forward, collaborate very effectively with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to recapture the space, right, the views, the movements, the experience of the landscape without putting back everything that was Olmsted, because in part, it wasn't possible. There were changes in the 50s, there were changes in the 30s, there were changes in the 70s. Various changes wouldn't let us take this landscape to an earlier time. The other really cool fact about Jackson Park is it's probably the first U.S. brownfield project Oh, really? Because the Olmsted firm, after the World Columbian Exposition in 1895, was asked to redesign it as a park. <laughs> and we found in doing the research that this was the first reference we'd ever seen to a soils plan because there was over 200 buildings demolished. They didn't know if they had any soil. Right. Oh, so good. they were dealing with a demolition site in the 1890s and treating it as a brownfield restoration. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I think sometimes we do we lose we in general uh, we lose sight that like some some of the stuff that we do is not brand new. <laughs> exactly. We think we're so smart. Right. <laughs> so, did you want to did you want to share or highlight any other any other projects or any other um any other um, any other things um, that that um, um. sure okay um, I think there there's always an interest especially these days I think in um, commemoration events tourism yeah. all of those kinds of aspects um, at Gettysburg little round top the site is being visited to its real uh, degradation. Oh, yeah. We're working with the National Park Service with a team headed by DHM Design to rethink the visitor arrival, the visitor movements, mm -hmm. to make the site stronger, to be able to withstand the level of visitation, and to have the site feel more authentic because of the interventions that mm -hmm. the team makes. So sometimes it's about lots of people in a place right and and that's i mean there were lots of people there that day but it was not that landscape was not intended to have the number of visitors that it has it was they were farm it was farm fields <laughs> well it's well, lots of people in a much earlier framework for how many right. yeah and there's a challenge there that when you talk about sites like that like battlefields um other sites that have these kind of their, their significance ties to a an event or a moment right. in time, especially something like a battle. Mm -hmm. What is authenticity and how do you, what do you, what kind of, uh, what do you evoke? What kind of character are you trying to uh, recapture? What, what changes are you trying to steward? Because these are all living places, yes. living landscapes that change over time. Mm -hmm. 
how do you steward it to have the character that evokes or at least enables the significance to be interpreted in the in the way that it, that it's intended. Right. Do you want to mention how that relates to Carter? The Carter firm? Oh yeah. Well, with um, I worked on a project with the University of South Florida and Quinn Evans at the at Jimmy Carter's home. Okay. And so this is uh, part of the the Jimmy Carter National Historic Site, but it's actually the home and garden of, of the former president. And so when you have significance related to people that are still inhabiting the landscape that's being um, addressed, there's, there's also issues of authenticity and questions about what, what does maintenance look like? What do recommendations look like? And, and how does that how does that relate to the actual preferences of the of the people that are currently living there right. and that of course involves the future what will happen to the site and how does that relate to all the other services that that attend the president i think that would be that would be challenging or just do the, does the family still live in the house even though it's a historic site okay yeah i think oh, that, yes. i think that would be that would be that would be challenging <laughs> well it's interesting because they're they're very much involved in the in their own gardens right and yeah. Rosalind and, and jimmy get uh, out and about regularly to interact with with national park service staff that helps to maintain the property as well as planting things themselves and directing things as their uh, desires change over time. Right. As well, homeowners. So it's not necessarily um, what people often think that preservation looks at frozen places. Right, right. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking that, that they're untouchable, you know, they don't, <laughs> yeah. you, can't, you can only look at them through the glass. I, I, I'm thinking that they, they probably have a little bit more, more latitude, but I, I know that on the preservation, uh, the, or the National Park Service projects we've done, that it takes a while to get any approval. So you can't just wake up in the morning and decide you want to do something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a long process. Yes. yes. <laughs> It's also documentation based, which oh, is true. Yeah. a very strong process and a very resilient process. Yeah. The work we're doing right now in Louisiana at the Cane River Creole is about magnolia plantation, one of the best examples of a southern plantation with the former quarters of the enslaved and then later tenant farms and shareholder farmers. Uh, and that's a legacy that needs to be um, communicated effectively. Right. And the work we're doing on the Cultural Landscape Report is giving them tools to move forward with framing projects and bringing changes to the site that will make the visitor experience stronger. Right. And I think for a long time, those stories weren't being told and those, those, that, that, whole the whole the story wasn't being told and so therefore it probably wasn't seen as valuable or important to to document those things so now we have to go through you know go back and try to try to fill in those pieces well we're always interested in presenting diversity and presenting inclusivity and yeah. looking at issues around the topic of justice these days so you know maybe um we could 
introduce one more term, cultural landscapes. Okay. Every day, that's what we work with. In 1992, the World Heritage Committee approved the addition to the World Heritage List of cultural landscapes. So it was a new sort of property type. The simple way to define it is the combined works of humanity and nature. So we take a place, we shape it, it becomes a cultural landscape. It still has, maybe it's geology. We've maybe changed the topography. We've altered the space, but, you know, it might still be on a bend in the river. (laughs) All part of the larger picture. So I think one of the reasons we do this work, and we also do not only our consulting, we do what we call professional volunteer work for national and international organizations. So um, we work with ICOMOS and IFLA, the International Federation of Landscape Architects and the International Council on Monuments and Sites. And through the ICOMOS connection, we help with um, the world heritage process, both evaluating and um, reviewing and being of assistance on world heritage sites, because just because they're listed doesn't mean they're all good. A lot of times need technical expertise and help. But I think that our approach is that when we look at this at the global level, if we understand each other's values, Mm -hmm. we begin at least to understand cross-culturally those values, and we can develop a degree of mutual respect, we are fostering peace and harmony. Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's a lot. I agree with you. I think, I think that once you start to realize that you have more in common with people than differences, the, those, the things that would have caused you not to, not to live in peace with them go away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I think that that's really a a helpful notion um, because as we approach 2030, we, continually bring in front of clients the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals 2030 Agenda. And we say, look, you know, in a place of heritage, you can still be sustainable. Right. You can actually be a model of sustainability because the carbon inputs of a pastime are being retained. Mm -hmm. And you have a way forward that connects to a global agenda that, unbelievable in these times, nearly 200 countries agreed to. Right, right. And, and I, I, I think that that's also an important part of, I know that's what something I try to do in our, in our work is to highlight that retaining what is already there is green rather than, you know, rather than building something new or, or throwing it all away, you know, you can, the things that you do can be, can be green and, and, and you can still have the energy efficiency or whatever else you need from that. So I would, I would think that, you know, working with nature and, and what, what was there before in, in your case would also, you know, be, be a greener option than, than bringing in other, other, other types of landscape. Yeah. yeah limit your interventions. Yeah. Do what's right. Don't do too much. Yeah. Make sure things are safe, but think about sustainability. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us or do you want to let us know how our listeners can contact you? I think, yeah, it's been a very fruitful conversation. Thanks for this. Um, 
Well, Heritage Landscapes, we can all be reached at www.heritagelandscapes.com. And that's the, the best way. The best way. Okay. And I'll make sure that's on our, our site where we post the, the, um, the podcast also. And, um, and we have offices in Vermont and Connecticut, but as we mentioned, work quite widely. Quite widely. Okay. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.